Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, A Case with More Questions Than Answers, and I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on YouTube or Audio Burst, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast or streaming platform you prefer. Stay tuned while we give you the opportunity to dive right into the middle of an active investigation that is far, far from complete. So, polish up your magnifying glass, put on your Sherlock Holmes hat, and fill your pipe as you ponder questions with us that need answers. We want to dedicate today's episode to our loyal listeners in the Alpha Tau Omega fraternity. Come on, guys. One of your frat buddies is still missing. Gather all your history major brothers and help us solve the case. And now, on with our show. We're going to do something today we have never done before on No Home for Heroes. Normally, we outline for you one of our MIA cases that has been fully investigated, well, as fully investigated as possible, and we detail our findings and conclusions. But today, we are deep in the middle of an active case investigation that has no end in sight. So grab your pencil and your notepad, or a pad of sticky notes like we used to use on the big whiteboard when investigating complicated criminal cases, and begin listing questions that you would have if you were the foundation investigator assigned to this case. Just remember, no one at the foundation gets paid for our work. We're all volunteers. So if you crack the case, all you will get is a Bravo Zulu from our production engineer, Cindy, which is Navy speak for good job. Let's begin with a brief history lesson about what is a very little-known campaign during World War II, one that was actually fought on American soil. Yep, that's right, American soil. In June 1942, the Japanese launched a carrier-based attack on our air installations at Dutch Harbor, Alaska, as part of a two-pronged attack on Alaska and Midway Island. The results of the attack inflicted damage but did not disable the base. The Japanese had planned to invade Adak Island in Alaska, but they mistakenly thought a base had already been established there. However, the Japanese decided to take the far western Aleutian Islands of Attu and Kiska instead, landing on both of these islands on 7 June 1942. This occupation by the Japanese of American soil created the need for a U.S. military advance base even farther west in the Aleutian chain of islands. The development of Adak Island began on 30 August 1942 when a force of about 4,500 men under the command of Brigadier General Eugene M. Landrum waded ashore on that barren and rocky soil. The first objective was the construction of an airfield and after a survey of an area of the island known as Sweeper Cove, it was determined that an airfield could easily be constructed on the tidal flats, and a dike was built to control the tidal flow. 
Incredibly, after only a 10-day construction period of the relatively flat airfield, which was named Davis Army Airfield, the first airstrikes from ADAC were launched against the Japanese positions on Attu and Kiska. These missions were the first combined fighter and bomber strikes of World War II, in which the attacking planes struck from very low altitude, basically right on top of the deck. During the fall of 1942, the 11th Air Force flew regular bombing missions against those Japanese positions on Attu and Kiska. There were heavy losses due to flying missions that were between 400 and 800 round-trip miles, and the weather was just awful. On 2 and 3 October 1942, Japanese planes strafed the base at Adak with machine gun fire and dropped at least nine bombs on the island. All of the bombs landed in undeveloped areas, which caused absolutely no damage. The raids, however, did place Adak Island, along with Pearl Harbor and Dutch Harbor, as one of only a handful of locations inside the United States to be the subject of an enemy air raid. The Navy soon followed the Army in constructing facilities on Adak. You know the Army and the Navy, they can't share things, they have to have their own separate airfield. By the summer of 1943, plans for the overall enlargement of the airbase was approved and implemented by the Navy. Two permanent runways designated Mitchell Field Naval Air Station were constructed between Lake Andrew and Clam Lagoon on Adak Island. This facility was designed to support 120 officers and 2,000 enlisted men. They operated Catalina, Catalina and Kingfisher seaplanes and Ventura PV-1 light bombers. The first months of 1943 saw the intensification of activity on ADAC as the island became a staging point for the plan to retake Attu Island from the Japanese. By early May 1943, about 27,000 combat troops were crammed onto ADAC Island, ready to support the invasion of Attu on 11 May 1943. Attu was fully under control of the United States forces by 29 May 1943 at the cost of about 2,300 Japanese lives and 550 American lives. In response to problems created by improper equipment and training experienced during the invasion of Attu, the invasion force assembled to retake Kiska Island from the Japanese, trained on Adak Island. On 15 August 1943, the invasion force, supported by approximately 90,000 soldiers and sailors and over 100 ships, landed on Kiska Island. (laughs) Much to their surprise, the invaders soon found that the Japanese had evacuated the island a few weeks before and there was nothing left but a few dogs. After retaking of Attu and Kiska Island, well, the shooting war basically in the Aleutians came to a hint. The U.S. forces still had to guard against a possible Japanese counteroffensive, however. Eventually, Adak Island became the largest military base in the Aleutian chain. One of the men assigned to this base was Lieutenant Junior Grade Hobart Hare Throckmorton. What a name. Hobart Hare Throckmorton. Well, it's no surprise that his family and friends called him Throck. Lieutenant Throckmorton was 71 inches tall. 150 pounds. He had brown eyes, brown hair, I'm sorry, and blue eyes, and a kind of a dark complexion. He was the epitome of the tall, handsome young man. He was 24 years of age. 
Hobart Hare Throckmorton stated he was born in Des Moines, Iowa to Tom B. and Edna W. Throckmorton. As I mentioned, he was known to Throck to his family and friends, and his father was a physician, a well-to-do physician, who could afford a maid in their home. Throck graduated from Roosevelt High School in Des Moines, Iowa in 1936. He was a member of the Latin Club and the Art Club, where he gained notoriety as a rather accomplished cartoonist. After graduation from high school, Throck entered Drake University in Des Moines and was a member of the Alpha Tau Omega fraternity before transferring to Iowa State College to major in architectural engineering. At the time of the 1940 census, Throck was living with his parents and a younger brother at 919 45th Street in Des Moines, Iowa. The house, built in 1915, is still there. You can go by and salute Throck but please don't bother the family who lives there now. They probably have no idea that it was once the residence of an American war hero. Throck registered for the the draft on 16 October 1940 and stated he was a student at Iowa State. On 26 June 1941, while still a student at Iowa State, Throck joined the United States Navy Reserves and was assigned the rank at his request of Aviation Cadet. Cadet Throckmorton was sent to the Naval Air Station in Corpus Christi, Texas, to train as a pilot. He received his wings on 13 January 1942 and was promoted to Ensign. On 12 March 1942, Ensign Throckmorton was transferred to the Patrol Division, Patrol Squadron Division, VP-43 in San Diego, California. With VP-43, Ensign Throckmorton was trained to fly the PBY-5A patrol aircraft. By June 1942, Ensign Throckmorton and his unit had been outfitted with the new Lockheed PV-1 Ventura bombers and assigned to the Aleutian Islands to counter the Japanese attack on Dutch Harbor. Ensign Throckmorton soon returned home on leave to Des Moines where he married Shirley Ann Ambrose on 27 September 1942. A month later, Ensign Throckmorton was promoted to Lieutenant Junior Grade and was back to active duty in the Aleutians. The War Department announced in February 1943 that Lieutenant Junior Grade Throckmorton had been awarded the Air Medal for, quote, attacking the Japanese and flying patrol under the most hazardous weather conditions, end quote. Throck received his medal during a ceremony at Whidbey Island Air Station in Puget Sound, Washington. Lieutenant Throckmorton was given again leave to return home to Des Moines, where he made a speech to the Service Men's Club on 23 March 1943 about his war experiences. And, more importantly, he and his wife conceived a baby girl during his leave who, sadly, would never see her father. After returning to the war from home leave, Lieutenant Throckmorton was transferred to Bombing Squadron VB-136 on 16 April 1943, and he was stationed on Adak Island, Alaska. On 25 September 1943, Lieutenant J.G. Throckmorton was assigned to pilot PV-1 Ventura, Bureau Number 33133, from the Naval Air Station at Adak Island, on a local area training mission. The crew of this aircraft included Lieutenant Throckmorton, his co-pilot, 
Lieutenant J.G. Claude McKinney, Aviation Machinist Mate Albert Toth, Aviation Radio Man Stanley F. Tamoff, and Aviation Chief Machinist Mate Franklin Bohannon. And the final member of the crew was the radio operator, John A. Rogers. Shortly after takeoff, Lieutenant Throckmorton's aircraft experienced an unknown emergency, and it crashed into Sweeper Cove approximately six miles south of the ADAC Naval Air Station. Boats nearby responded to the crash site and rescued the co-pilot, Lieutenant J.G. McKinney, and the radio operator, aviation radio man, first class, John Allen Rogers. Neither of the crew members who were rescued was seriously injured, but no trace of the other crew members, including Lieutenant Throckmorton, was reportedly found. Lieutenant Claude Edwin McKinney survived the war, and he died on 1 January 1980. He's buried at Riverside National Cemetery in Riverside, California. The fate and the location of the other survivor of the crash, Radio Man First Class John Allen Rogers, is unknown at this time. The exact circumstances of Lieutenant J.G. Throckmorton's loss are unknown. His Individual Deceased Personnel File, or IDPF, his Official Military Personnel File, or OMPF, and the Crash Report of Bureau Number 33133 are not currently available to Foundation investigators. And therein lies the primary problem with this case. It is difficult for the investigation to perceive if there's no leads to follow. Freedom of Information Act requests or FOIA requests to the National Archives were filed by the Foundation researchers on 20 October 2019. So, now, for present, we just wait. We wait like Lieutenant Throckmorton and most of his crew have waited for 76 years to be found. Curiously, there's no indication in any available record cited by the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Command that there was any attempt at salvage of the aircraft or any attempt to recover the bodies of Lieutenant Throckmorton or his lost crew members. All of the original MIAs from Lieutenant Throckmorton's crew remain unresolved, and there's no indication that any of them were ever recovered. Foundation investigators determined that a cemetery was established on ADAC Island for deceased military personnel during the war. However, this cemetery was completely disinterred after the war, and all remains were shipped to American military cemeteries in the lower 48 states or returned home to family members for hometown burials. The Fort Richardson National Cemetery near Anchorage, Alaska, was established during World War II specifically to bury soldiers of any nationality who died in Alaska. Foundation investigators have contacted the staff at Fort Richardson National Cemetery and confirmed that there are no unknowns buried at that cemetery. If there ever were any unidentified American servicemen buried there, the staff confesses that they have no information as to where they would have been sent other than the, quote, lower 48 states, end quote. Nautical charts examined by Foundation investigators indicate that the location listed in the currently available records for the crash of Lieutenant Throckmorton's aircraft, known as Sweeper's Cove, is relatively shallow. 
water depth is generally less than 100 feet inside the cove. A golden opportunity to search for Lieutenant Throckmorton and his lost aircraft and his other crew members was likely missed just last month in September 2019 when a Navy Underwater Explosive Ordnance Demolition Group, sometimes known as EOD, conducted an underwater survey of, you guessed it, Sweeper Cove, Adak Island, Alaska. The EOD team was reported in the media to have, quote, found and cleared shipwrecks, end quote, with their sophisticated equipment. So it's likely that the team could have also found a downed aircraft in the shallow water of Sweeper Cove. The rescue of two members of Lieutenant Throckmorton's crew by nearby boats indicates that there were witnesses to the crash. These witnesses should have been able to pinpoint the aircraft's location, and certainly the fuel and the oil on board a PV-1 light bomber would have marked its location in the water for many days after the crash. There is no indication in any available record that the wreckage of the aircraft or Lieutenant Throckmorton's body or the other MIAs from the crash were ever recovered. So, we are left with a series of questions that have no answers. What caused the airplane to crash? The number of aviation machinist mates on board, too, suggests that the plane may have had a maintenance problem, and the purpose of the flight was to check out these maintenance issues. And why were all of the aviation machinist mates lost in the crash? What did the two survivors have to say about the crash? We don't have the Buno aircraft crash report to find this information out right now, but we're waiting. We do know that both of the survivors were not seriously injured. So why didn't Lieutenant Throckmorton, who was sitting very near both of them in the aircraft, why didn't he get out alive as they did? And why did Lieutenant Throckmorton, who was a vastly experienced pilot with by flying PBY seaplanes, why did he choose to pass right over the top of the Army airfield about four miles from his takeoff point at the Navy field if he had a problem and needed to land? Why didn't he just land on the Army field right below him? And, of course, there are dozens of questions that can be formulated about why the plane was not salvaged or the remains are at least recovered from such shallow water as existed in Sweeper Cove. Hmm, maybe the plane didn't crash in Sweeper Cove at all. Did the DPAA, the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency, even bother to tell the Navy EOD team that they had an active MIA case at the exact spot? where the EOD group was doing an underwater survey? Or better yet, maybe somebody at the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency will hear this podcast and call the Navy and say, Hey guys, did you happen to find a one-ton, two-engine bomber on the bottom of Sweeper Cove? Please tell me you didn't blow it up. Well, stranger things have happened. Maybe that call will be made. Do the remains of Lieutenant J.G. Hobart Hare Throckmorton currently lie entombed inside the wreck of aircraft PV-1 of Ventura Bomber somewhere in Sweeper Cove on Adak Island, Alaska at a depth of less than 100 feet? Do they lie there today? Well, we have more questions than answers. 
but we're on the case, and now you're on the case. We'll keep you updated as to what we finally discover and where the leads ultimately take us. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. Today's episode was from the active case number 0440 of the investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. Our foundation is dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and American service women. We hope you've enjoyed today's production and we invite you to check out our other podcasts. Please subscribe for free to Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts so that you'll always be notified when a new episode is ready for you to listen to. We will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action every Saturday just for you. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. You sure don't want to miss our next episode on No Home for Heroes. We'll have another exciting true story about one of our missing American heroes. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas, I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them.